Hello and welcome to JP Morgan's Global Data Pod. I'm your host, Nora Santivani. And in today's research trap, we are going to be talking about Japan with particular focus on the Bank of Japan and its path to an exit from its ultra-loose monetary policy. Uh, to discuss this with me, I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Ayako Fujita, JP Morgan's Chief Economist for Japan, and Ben Shatil, Senior Economist for Japan. Welcome. Thank you. Hey, Nora. Good to have you both on. We managed to find a mutually convenient time. Um, I'm in London, you two are in, are in Tokyo, so that's all good. So why don't we start with the big event this week, which is the nomination of a new Bank of Japan governor. Uh, that nomination will uh, go to parliament for approval. I think it's tomorrow, uh, Tuesday, 14th of February. Now media reports on Friday already indicated a new person has been found. Uh, his name is Kazuo Ueda. I think this nomination is all the more momentous because it's coming at a time when the Bank of Japan is facing increasing pressure uh, to phase out yield curve control and tighten monetary policy for the first time, well, in a long time, 2007. So Ayako, why don't you start us off here and maybe you could give us your insights on the on the nom nomination, what do we need to know about him? Uh, what do his initial statement, statements suggest about his views on monetary policy? Is he a hawk, is he a dove? What are your thoughts? Market may have took him as a kind of hawkish side, but I think he's more kind of neutral because you know, Professor Weather has not made major public comments on the monetary policy since the last summer. But in the last summer, he had advocated the policy of maintaining monetary easing until inflation meeting the target is deemed to be, have been sustained, but also have taken the position that it will be necessary to revisit the framework for the protracted and unprecedented monetary easing. So he was rather dovish when he served as policy board member in 1998 to 2005, supporting the introduction of zero interest rate policy and QE but he appears to be not very supportive to keeping the current policy setting for long. I see. Okay, so it sounds like he could be a fairly balanced uh, choice here, but clearly, uh, you know, some changes are likely uh, this year in Japan. And I guess what we should probably really focus on is economic conditions, right? What are those uh, telling us about the need to withdraw this very accommodative policy. Ayako, maybe you could uh, kind of paint the landscape here a little bit and talk about what, you know, the inflation data, the wage data, what the macroeconomic conditions are like, and how do you see those evolving in the next couple of months here in terms of um, the Bank of Japan getting a bit more convinced that it can sustainably meet its 2% inflation target? Okay, um, core goods price has already risen to well above the BOJ's target with firm size and cost pass-through behavior. So in that sense, actually, you know, the core goods price inflation has already met in terms you know, of BOJ's target. But you know, to assess this inflation to be sustainable, BOJ need to, is focusing on whether service prices will continue to rise backed by a sustained rise in wages. So despite the recent rise, service inflation has remained rather muted with December nationwide service inflation remaining 0.8% over the year. So of course, you know, 
the December print was dragged by the government travel service, but even now, excluding this policy factor, we estimate service inflation still remained 1.4% of no, year on year. So for service inflation, wage growth is critical, mm -hmm. and the BOJ has waited for evidence of, of firms and sustained wage growth, including signals that we will, we will likely to get an upcoming spring wage negotiation. I see. Okay, so there's quite a few wage indicators floating around here. Which is the one that the Bank of Japan is really focused on and kind of how, where do you see that going in the next three to six months? Do you think it's kind of headed in the direction that will um, turn out to be sustainable pickup that is uh, required here for the BOJ to start moving? Um, okay, yeah, and of course, the spring wage negotiation is one critical actually event for us. But you no, know, of course, we also have monthly wage indicator. And if we look at the monthly wage indicator, no, even actually schedule earning has been risen actually since you know, the middle of last year. So it's you no, know, we expect you no know, this trend will likely to continue for months ahead. So all in all, when do you think overall economic conditions will be such that the Bank of Japan can say, okay, we're now uh, pretty confident here that we can meet this two percent target on a sustained basis, and it's not just a one-off you know, pick up in inflation and not just due to transitory factors. What is the timing of that in your view? Maybe I can pass on to Ben on this issue, I guess. Okay, yeah, I mean, maybe I can jump in here. So I guess, you know, if we think about some of the indicators that we're looking at, you know, wage growth is already um, pretty firm, right? We had the December wage report last week, we had earnings up, um, earning growth up almost 5%. And I think, as Ayako mentioned, there was a bit of you know, seasonality in the sense that we had large year-end bonus payments. So there is a bit of a, a kind of a year-end effect there. But if you look at the underlying trend of that that wage or, or those, those earnings um, numbers, we basically got wages rising at their fastest pace since, you know, the late 90s. So I think if we continue to see those sorts of numbers, um, wage growth around 2%, that's our forecast. Um, I guess a couple of implications, right? The first is that that kind of a dynamic in terms of the labor, labor market tightness in terms of wage growth is probably going to be consistent with further rises in service sector prices. And as I think you know, that that's one area that the BOJ mm -hmm. is looking at. Very and then by extension, the second point is if we do continue to see that sort of, um, you know, that sort of a dynamic in the data, then that I think, you know, gives cover or gives comfort for some sort of policy move. And as I think you know, our call is that the BOJ widens the, the ceiling of the YCC band to 100 basis points sometime in the, in the middle of the year. Yes, absolutely. So, okay, so economic conditions, macro conditions heading in the right direction, it seems. Uh, so economic conditions are one thing, but how about market pressure, right? The Bank of Japan here has faced increasing pressure um, to widen the band further. I think we saw briefly... Um, 10 year yields going above 0.5%. Uh, you know, at this point, it, it looks like the Bank of Japan has had to buy uh, JGBs in quite large size. So Ben, can you comment a little bit about the market pressure that the Bank of Japan is facing here? Is there, you know, a point at which they say, okay, we can't really sustain the pace of these purchases, or it's no longer optimal for us to do so? Um, and at that point, you know, their hand could be forced. I mean, what what are market pressures telling us right now? 
and how sustainable uh, is this really or uh, or ayako maybe for you then okay yeah then that's true actually you're right no market functionality has not improved much even after the december rcc adjustment and you no know, in january it enhanced the fund supplying operation against poor quarter but it no it didn't much help to improving market functionality so we think as you know, if declining market functionality becomes even more severe and it becomes difficult for the MOP to issue government bond, or if it becomes difficult for BUJ to control the 10-year DGB under the current framework, there is a risk that actually BOJ could move earlier. But we still think that you know, BOJ, you know, for BOJ, economic condition is still important and BOJ would probably want to decide on the timing of further CC adjustment based on economic conditions. Yeah, so I think, Ayako, you had commented previously that the BOJ likely prefers to abandon YCC at a time when upward pressure on interest rates is actually easing to some extent, right? What are your thoughts about that in the current environment, right? Because we're in a situation where um, in the US there's growing pressure for you know rates to rise further, you know, the terminal Fed funds rate is being priced higher. Um, what are the implications of this kind of external upward pressure on yields globally and in terms of the Bank of Japan's thoughts around timing of exiting? What, what do you think about yeah. that? Yeah. Um, yeah, if not, the situation is not very favorable for BOJ in terms of timing of YCC exit. And of course, it's you no. Know, if global yield pressure gets higher, you know, it becomes even more difficult for YCC, you know, BOJ to completely abandon YCC. But you no, know, in that event, actually, BOJ may probably need to widen the bond to 100 basis point. But still, it's not, you know, very sufficient for our BOJ to actually completely remove YCC, even with the 100 basis point of upper bond. So in that event, if you know, the global yield pressure continues to be elevated, then actually BOJ might be forced to additional YCC, you know, probably you know, kind of YCC bond tweak before they completely moving YCC. That could be a potential scenario we can think of. I see. Okay, so kind of a smaller, smaller step first, and then no and additional step afterwards. You no know, hundred basis point. I see. Okay. All right, so so that's the YCC removal, and then the second step, really, I mean, in terms of sequencing, I think as you, as you described, is um, uh, widen the band first. Effectively, you're exiting YCC at that point, and then the second step would be exiting from the negative interest rate policy. Right? Are the macro conditions for actual rate hikes any different from? Um, abandoning YCC. Uh, so how are these conditions different and what's the timing you think of exiting from the negative interest rate policy? What's the sequencing? Yeah, I think as you know, the BOJ is not in hurry removing negative interest rate policy because of course, you know, YCC abandoned need to come first before actually they remove negative interest rate. But once we know BOJ will be removed negative you know, YCC, then actually, you know, they can decide actually timing of negative interest rate without you know, being exposed by market pressure. So in that event, you know, BOJ may you know, take, you know, probably you know, the signal we got so far from BOJ is BOJ may wait you know, until you know, they can get full confidence about economic recovery and also inflation you know, dynamics 
So that is probably likely to come not this year, probably likely in the no, middle of next year at the earliest or maybe later. All right. Uh, so how about a scenario in which uh, I'm just thinking of the different external uh, conditions and, and global scenarios. How about the scenario in which the U.S. economy is maybe heading into a deeper recession by the end of the year and the Fed starts cutting rates? I mean, how does that affect your outlook potentially for everything we've just um, discussed? Yeah. In that event, you know, BOJ can remove you no know, YCC because it's you no know, probably you no know, most likely we can reasonably expect you no know, ten year bond yield is likely to fall within a hundred basis point, you no know, the expected upper bound. So they can just remove YCC, but you no know, BOJ might wait until you no know, global economy and Japanese economy is heading toward you no know, toward more kind of recovery before they remove negative interest rate. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so really the near-term pressure here would be, I think, for uh, further upward pressure on U.S. Treasury yields. This kind of um, pause is not enough scenario where, um, you know, yields continue to get pressured higher uh, in the near term. I guess what we haven't really talked about and I'm, I'm quite curious about is uh, kind of the impact of these ultra-loose monetary policies that Japan has pursued for some time now. Are there any signs that negative interest rates are having a negative impact on the real economy? You know, there's a lot of talk around things like bank profitability. Are there any kind of negative side effects that have begun to emerge from these policies? Uh, yeah, um, well, the banks are not really reporting deficit due to the negative interest rate, but you no, know, this has weighed on banks' earnings for long. and. Banks are not allowed to pass negative rates to depositors in Japan. So banking industry has shown some understanding as it expected the policy to be temporary, but as this becomes longer, dissatisfaction among banks is increasing. And also, it's not, probably one thing important to note is you know, concerns have risen recently that prolonged low interest rate environment has led to a delay in needed structural reform. That include fiscal consolidation mm -hmm. and also efforts to improve productivity through labor market reform. So that is why actually there is a growing momentum that excessive fiscal and monetary easing should not be continued further in order to promote the needed economic restructuring. Okay. And at the same time, would you say, have there been any real benefits from these very loose policies that have been in place? So what's the kind of net um, is, is, has it been a basically net benefit to the economy in your view, or, or would you say at this point that the, the costs are starting to outweigh the benefits? I think it's you not. Know, the people start now start realizing that probably cost is now outweighed on the be no benefit because you know the initial stage of introduction of negative interest has boosted lending and that's boosted you no know, a little bit of investment. But you no, know, since not this you no know, policy demand has remained pressed for long. So we don't now we don't see actually you know quite significant positive from this negative interest rate policy. So it's I think as the cost is much you now becoming larger than actually benefits these days. From the government's perspective, the stakes also seem to be quite high here. When I look at Japan's debt to GDP ratio, it's it's over over what two hundred fifty percent. So that's yeah. roughly double what the the US has. And when I look at the numbers. Roughly a quarter of the budget is spent on debt redemptions and interest payments. So I guess the debt situation will also be among the key considerations in thinking about 
lift off here? What what are your thoughts around, um, you know, that dynamics and the pressures there? Kind of you no, know, the momentum to you know mix of you no know, monetary policy to normalize comes from actually really concern actually you know coming from the fiscal side because it's you know if we continue to make keep monetary policy is then there are actually you no know, no kind of you no know, general public momentum to actually go ahead with fiscal consolidation, but of course at the same time you know given the current con- you know debt condition in Japan. I don't think actually BOJ can proceed monetary policy normalization in terms of it, particularly for you know, short-term rate hike to you know, very, you know, to carry out it very aggressively. So I think it's you know, the kind of natural consequences of this debt situation. So Japanese monetary policy normalization needed to be, to, to, to be carried forward at very gradual pace to limit the you know, economic impact. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, also, given the substantial kind of unrealized losses on the BOJ's balance sheet, that could potentially require the government to step up, step in, right, and back up those losses. There's also been talk about revising the government BOJ accord. Is there anything we should be looking for there? Um, I think no. Of course, you know, we have to wait until new governor's you know, policy stance, but this, you know, there is a high possibility that actually, you know, government and you know, BOJ will you know, devise you know, the accord. But you know, this is probably likely not for BOJ's policy because it's likely to give a little bit of flexibility to BOJ monetary policy. But at the same time, probably you know, if the new accord will come, then that's going to also have some kind of... You know, kind of requirement for government fiscal consolidation as well. So it's both sides. Okay, absolutely. All right. So Ben, maybe shifting to you a little bit, you uh, wrote down a nice research piece here called uh, Losing Yield Curve Control, uh, where you uh, kind of go through uh, the implications of an exit from YCC on uh, global liquidity. And also, you know, you talk through how uh, changes in Japan's investment allocations from, you know, foreign assets back to domestic debt as as yields rise, uh, could have then ramifications for other debt markets. Do you want to talk us through what the main takeaways are in terms of what what the ramifications could be globally? Thanks, Nora. Um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the broad point here is that you've had what a decade or so of zero to negative rates in Japan that you know, has been in large part responsible for Japanese investors, you know, seeking yield offshore. Um, so to the degree that we now see, you know, rates moving in the opposite direction in Japan, so higher, um, I think there's a, you know, there's an important question to be asking around what does that mean in terms of thinking about Japanese investment flows. So if you look at the data last year, you, you know, Japan was a seller um, in almost every month in global debt markets. They sold about 20, 25 trillion yen, so what, 150, $180 billion worth of, of foreign debt. And you know, there's an argument that, well, perhaps that was because the yen is is, is weak. So you know, in yen terms, you, you make you make a profit. Is it because globally yields are rising, FX hedging costs are rising, it's not attractive for Japanese investors to be holding on to FX hedged positions. And all of that is true, but if you model those flows and you ask the question, well, are those is that amount of selling in foreign debt markets consistent with how the market has moved? In other words, what level of yields um, 
we're seeing, what, what level of the yen we're seeing? The answer is that actually, no, Japanese investors are selling far more in foreign debt markets than, than would be consistent um, with these kinds of market variables. So our interpretation is a couple of things. One, on net, I think Japanese investors in, in some way are preparing for higher yields, that they're getting their books in order in order to start buying JGBs as and when JGB yields head higher because of change in BOJ policy. Um, and two, when we look at the, you know, globally, where is Japanese exposure highest? In other words, which debt markets have a highest proportion of, of Japanese holdings? So where are Japanese most invested? Um, it's not typically where, where people expect. So, you know, Japan is the largest holder of, of U.S. treasuries. There's a share of the market that that's not all that big. Where they do have a large share is places like Australia, um, you know, Western Europe. And I think, you know, our hypothesis is that if this kind of flow dynamic continues, then potentially that's where we see, um, you know, the impact of these, of these flows um, most. Okay, all right. And how about the implications for Japan's own kind of balance of payments? What should we expect to see on the current account? And, and also the yen, right, ultimately will be affected by this. Okay, so I, I think there are a couple of things to think about. So the first is a, a kind of a longer term story, right? So when we think of Japan's BOP, as, as you know, Japan runs a, a fairly big current account surplus. But a lot of that surplus is, in fact, most of that surplus is coming from investment income. Right? So Japanese holdings of foreign assets on which they're earning a coupon or, or a dividend. So if the argument is that over time that, that stock of assets is starting to decline because Japanese you know, investors are shifting back to onshore assets, then there is an argument that the, you know, the current account surplus over time starts to narrow. And, and that's, you know, that's not a one kind of two-year story, that's a five, maybe 10-year story. But I think the second point is more of a, um, a near-term kind of an issue. And that's thinking of, you know, to your question, Nora, thinking about what are the implications for the yen? Um, and so look, last year was interesting because, you know, the way that the yen behaved was all about policy divergence. It was all about the Japan trade deficit, importers selling the yen and, and the yen really, really depreciating through, throughout the year. I think, you know, to some degree that, that idea of policy divergence is still there, but I think this year is, is much more going to be driven by these, these capital flows that we're talking about. The idea that Japan yields are heading higher and the idea that Japanese investors are, are shifting assets back on shore, to me suggests a, a bit of a more supportive backdrop for the yen. And I guess the final point on that is, you know, some of those flows are going to be FX hedged. They're, they're not going to be important for currency markets. But at the same time, some of those flows are not FX hedged, right? They, they actually involve yen purchases. And I think that's one reason that we're a bit more optimistic about, number one, the sort of the capital flow side of Japan's balance of payments, and number two, um, you know, the sort of the backdrop for the yen um, going through 2023. All right, that's all very clear. Um, I think before ending here, Ayako, I'm going to try and pin you down a little bit. Uh, so our base case is our YCC effectively gets abandoned around the middle of the year. What would you say is the risk around that? Is it that it happens sooner or later? And what are the kind of rough probabilities you would put on that? Okay, um, of course, it's not the no, area risk is clearly there because, you know, BOJ is you know, facing quite severe market pressure right now. So if you know, BOJ thinks that's you not know, 
they cannot maintain market functionality. And of course, you know, they might need to move a bit earlier than that. But of course, you know, clearly what BOJ is doing right now is you know, just buying time until they get confident, full confidence to you know, raise you know, long-term yield. So I think it's probably the risk is more on the ARIA side rather than later. Okay, risk a little bit earlier. Good, I managed to get that out of you. <laughs> All right, <laughs> super. I think that's a, a, probably a good point uh, to end there. Uh, thank you very much to Ayako and Ben for taking the time to uh, discuss with us their views. Thank you to our listeners. And we look forward to continuing the conversation on the next Global Data Pod Research Wrap. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on February 13, 2023.